sit down. Are you okay? Or you got the flu? You got the flu? Ebola? Okay, you're welcome. Stay here. I'd be quarantined, right? All right. No, we self-quarantine now. Why would we want to impose our will on others? Yes, I can. All right, everybody. Good job. Good job. Would you sit down? Would you sit down? I'm trying to find my book, so this will be a second. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Essentially, it's saying that you're inside the beautiful. Where's my son alone? Okay. That's how I will see I am not. He is. All right. Are we ready? Okay, there is there is penalty for whoever's the last one in. And really, Mrs. Spurlock, is she talking to my wife? No, there's there's still more people. I'm sorry, my wife. Mr. Upham gets a buy. He has he has a buy. Everyone wants to sit next to you. But they are ministering, so they get a buy as well. I'm usually in the back. Are we ready now? We are. Gee whiz. So I'm sure there won't be any argument about uh, teaching late and reviewing ad nauseum today. Since we need to make up all the time that you uh, cackling hens were cackling away. We were delighting. Oh, making up for next time. That's good. That's great. Yeah. Troublemaker. I can see you right now. Yeah. All right. Well, good Shabbos. We did move the um, we did move the the camera. Uh, Joshua Martin is uh, feeling well, a bit peaked. And um, I heard there was something about what he ate here. I'm finding it hard to believe. I ate everything, and I'm feeling no. I'm feeling fine. Um, I do want to make special mention to uh, to two dishes. I don't know who made them, so it's completely well. I do know who made them, but uh, uh, for those of you who didn't notice, the oven was on the Shabbat setting, and uh, a large, long, excruciatingly delicious hoagie had been warmed in there. I was asked by persons untold if it was actually meat. And I said, well, no, actually, I believe Juliana Spurlock made that, so no. 
It's not me. Well, why is it over here away from the rest of the food? It just came out of the oven. It's hot and there's no more room on the table. But don't don't concern don't concern yourself. Just go back to the table. It was wonderful. And I think the second one was that long rectangular greenish goo with a whole bunch of cheese on top that Glorious. turned out to be an unbelievable. Didn't you make it? That was me. What, what, what do you call oh, nice. that? Woo. Glorious. Seven layer bean dip. That's what I'm talking about. Seven L. Autumn Gordon. This is the seven LBD. Yeah. Now, if we had nine of the seven LBD, that would not be a problem. And then, actually, just a. While that was the most incredible thing in the world, it may be the last time the Foster credit card buys black olives. I, He's got a problem. With He's got a problem with black olives. Yeah, big problem. Just, just buying. Half with black. Oh, just buying. Why does it always have to be about color? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Now, honorable mention has got to go to those cute little teeny weeny cups filled with cream cheese, topped with salmon, and then a habanero. Pomegranate sauce. Oh my goodness! Did you know if you put them on your thumb and go like that, it lands on the floor? So don't do that, but they were great. And I was just waiting in the kitchen drinking my wine, hoping that, uh, well, the rest of you would just. Who made those? Who made those, Mrs. Uh, Andrea. Andrea, you're still single, is that correct? <laughs> yes. I just want to make it is. Where's Isaac? Where's Isaac? Isaac left. Good. So, I didn't want to embarrass him. So, I. How many of you noticed, for those of you who are actually here for the Shakari service, how many of you noticed that Isaac just nailed it with his Torah blessing, his reading, blessing after the Torah? Amen. So, uh, he even got every single pronoun, like every single pronoun. See? So, uh, so he's getting a cup of coffee, and I said, uh, Isaac, I just want to tell you, just, you hit it out of the park with that uh, Torah blessing, Torah reading, all that pretty... Unbelievable. I said, uh, you're, you're single, right? He says, yes, sir. I said, are you thinking about getting married? He says, yes, tomorrow. Yes, <laughs> Good, there it is. So, he's, uh, he's ready. He's ready. All right, so, a couple things here. Um, as we did at the Torah, as we did before our prayer service, Yeah, I get that. I get that. Talk to him during One. Gee, where they were trying. <laughs> All right, as we did during our Shakari, as we did during our Shakari service, I do want to uh, recognize the folks that uh, do not have the blessing that we have, that do not have the privilege of violating Shabbat 
under duress in order to drive and get here and be in fellowship. As Taylor said, who, by the way, Lori was, I think, a little under the weather. Um, where's Lori? She's the pretty girl behind me. There she is. Um, as uh, Taylor was saying, no, what the heck was Taylor saying? Oh, there's a special blessing to pray with the community. And, and I feel that. I sense that is true. So at any rate, um, please uh, look at the uh, camera and give a good Shabbos and welcome to, uh, to uh, let me tell you who they are first, <laughs> to Tom and the Torah Keepers in Mar Myrtle Beach. Hi, Tom. Uh, to uh, David and Mark and the rest of the Torah North community and all the Torah Keepers in Canada who happen to be uh, going in there, Wayne and his family. And then um, a great good Shabbos to Bill Lensmeyer and his family. They're in the middle of nowhere on a goat farm. And when the sun rises, Bill's out there with his sons, and they're milking the goats and doing what you got to do. And we would not mind some goat cheese. And goat cheese. this way. We're trying to get uh, two things to happen. We're trying to get Bill to teach about GMOs and that, uh, what do you call that? It's not gluten-free. It's genetically modified organisms. Uh, to a Tuesday night study class, and we're trying to get Bill and Karen and the boys down here for a Shabbos. So, welcome Bill and encourage him. And bring, bring a goat. Don't bring a goat. Okay. And then finally, we've got Jerry and Alex and their families in Texas. Good Shabbos. And, um, I'm, I don't know if uh, the other folks are still watching, but right. you need to be aware that there are there are people in faraway places like Germany, Trinidad and Tobago, um, and Gastonia, <laughs> that are actually praying and learning the Torah with you. So I want to encourage you that not only has God placed you in a wonderful position to get community and fellowship, but also to be an encouragement and an example to others. So... Uh, with that in mind, just a real quick thing. You may have noticed that uh, we put a uh, kosher lamp in the uh, in the bathroom there. Um, so if you are stepping up your obedience to uh, to the 39 melachot, then you don't have to deal about deal with turning on the light in the in the bathroom. We've got um, toilet paper prepared for you there, and uh, we're and we of course made uh, uh, coffee for you ahead of time. For those of you who uh, saw the black carafe and it says Shomer Shabbos Java, that does not mean drink this coffee. It means if you are trying to be Shomer Shabbos as best you can, which means that you are putting yourself under Shabbat law according to the Shulchan Aruch, then don't drink that coffee unless you fall into that category. Put a cup under the thing in the in the coffee pot and press coffee. By the way, if you press cappuccino and there's no milk attached, which there never is, it'll just go <laughs> at you. So don't do that. So use the coffee machine. And then finally, um, one last thing on Shabbos, and that's this. You know that my family would be praying whether you came or not. That's what we do and you're invited to come and pray with us. And we are so grateful and so blessed that you do. But it is exceptionally easy on my family if we know how many to expect. It is interesting to me today that 
25 people were signed up to come. And when Greg Upham got up to start the Torah service, 47 people were sitting in my family room. I do want to thank the uh, Josh and his brother and the rest of the Gordon family for helping me get the table out of the way and all that kind of stuff. Don't hit the door next time. Is that your brother that hit the door? Yeah, yeah. just tell him. <laughs> um, so let's get to that meetup and sign up. Okay? Thank you. That's great. Last, uh, last option uh, here to tell you about before Joshua gets up to lead us is that the next time we meet is two weeks from now. Of course, that would be the 22nd of November or the 29th of Cheshvan, two weeks from now as normal. But it will not be a normal Shabbat for our community. There will be no Oneg, and there will be no portion discussion because many of us are going to a wedding uh, for the Farnick and Allisons. To that end, if you come to the prayer service and you bring an Oneg dish, you are welcome to sit and watch me eat it. <laughs> no pressure. I'll even give you a glass of wine. Other than that, you're certainly welcome to leave it. I will wash your dishes, you know, uh, after Motsi Shabbat, and you can pick those up at some other time. Questions on that? No? I, you know all the dishes I loved in case you're... Yeah, okay. Thank yeah. you, Joseph and Alan, for your home. Amen. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, Mr. Spurlock, for your sons. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, and also, speaking of weddings that weekend, the following day, Sunday, we certainly would appreciate all of you to come participate uh, as I have the honor and privilege to renew my vows with my bride for our 25th anniversary. So uh, all of you are invited to that. I think everybody has gotten invitations. If for some reason we miss somebody, let us know. But um, we'd love to see you there. So. Here, here. So let's figure out what time is now. And what time is on the clock? So I don't have to keep checking my phone. Does this say 126 on here? It says 126 on here, and I don't see a time on this guy, but maybe that's just because, oh, there it is. It's in the top of the corner. It's a little teeny tiny. Very tiny. Very tiny. My mom would probably tell me I have to strain my eyes, so I'm just going to. Okay. okay. Um, I want to say that I thought it was fantastic this morning that we had two Isaacs read the passage Amen. about the birth of Isaac. Amen. Oh, that was fantastic. Job, Congratulations Brock. to Brock for managing to figure that one out. There he is. And we also, we also managed to get as many guys as possible who was, you know, the Hebrew name is Son of Abraham. I thought that was fantastic. Um, it's kind of a running joke the whole way through, but only for those in the know. Um, <laughs> But yes, this week we're talking about the birth of Isaac and um, a whole bunch of other uh, cool and somewhat rather creepy stuff. Um, there's, some, there's some icky portions in the Bible. Um, not to say that they're bad, obviously they're not the Word of God. But at the same time, sometimes there's some of them that are somewhat unpleasant. Um, one thing that's probably a bit unpleasant for people experience it, I would assume, is being circumcised when you're like what eighty something years old? Well, by that time, you feel it. Uh, I, I think by that time you feel everything most likely. So um, I have to say the eight day plan was brilliant because 
you know, basically you're, that's why little boys don't remember anything until they're like four, because they're just getting over the trauma. <laughs> um, I, I actually remember a rabbi saying, my son cried more at his first haircut. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there we go. So, um, and, we, and we start the portion in chapter 18 of Genesis, uh, what, what you may have not realized is that the Bible in this particular section is actually chronological. And in chat, the last portion from last week, we had the circumcision of Abraham and his son Ishmael and his whole household. And so if we get started in chapter 18, Abraham is feeling rather unpleasant. Um, he is sitting in the heat of the day, and that's not his biggest problem. He is, according to tradition, he is in day three, which is apparently the worst of the recovery days after a circumcision. Um, and according to tradition, that's why it's the heat of the day. God sent a massive heat wave so that no one would bother Abraham. Um, of course, God also has a, has a funny sense of humor and decided to disrupt his recovery day himself. Um, but of course, that is the reward of the righteous. They get a chance to do more mitzvot. Um, and Abraham does that. One of the things about this particular passage that is absolutely brilliant. We're, we've been, uh, for those of you who are um, following along at home or in uh, person with the Zadi class, we're currently going through the Mesilat Yisharim, or the Path of the Just. And in that particular uh, section, uh, one of the things we haven't gotten to yet, but we'll get to very soon, one of the ethics, essentially it's the study of, of ethics from a Jewish perspective, one of the ethics about being a godly person is having alacrity, which is a very fancy word for saying that you do things quickly. Yes, and uh, one of the things about Abraham that is so cool in this passage is he is fast. And if you've ever gotten a chance to interact with somebody who moves efficiently, like my wife does, like my dad does, you will appreciate the fact that they get things done sometimes so effortlessly because they're just so used to moving quickly. And one of the things I noticed this year reading this passage as Abraham is trying to help these guests is that he is moving as quickly as he possibly can, and yet he never rushes his guests. He never makes them feel like they're burdening him, like they're overwhelming him, like he has so much to do. It's like as soon as he's with them, he is composed, he is in 100% in their presence. And then as soon as he has to go do something, he's moving as fast as he possibly can while still recovering, by the way. And old. And old, old people move slowly. That they normally do. Not all of us. Um, <laughs> right. Joshua. Yes. That is, that is just, a relative state. I'm like 80 or 90. That's true. He is up there. My grandmother has apparently the, the blood of Abraham and has yet to stop, slow down. Um, I just wanted to point out that I was reading this week that um, Abraham says, um, let some water be brought, wash your feet, climb beneath this tree, I'm going to get some bread, sustain yourselves. And um, what I read, the rabbis went through each phrase, let some water be brought, wash your feet, and so on and so forth. And then they quoted other verses where God repaid the, he, the Israelites. They, uh. He did exactly for them what Abraham did for him. And, um, and they, they broke it down into three parts, uh, how God repaid Israel in the wilderness, and then in the land, and then also in the Messianic age. That's cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. Yes, sir. Um, the quickness with which Abraham did this, but it was also with, is, is good, but it was also a kind of a. What's the word I want to use? Um, it, it, he did it throughout the whole portion because he always rose early mm -hmm. in the morning right. to sacrifice Isaac, to uh, you know 
whenever God told him to do something, he was very quick uh, to, to circumcise his son, the son of Hagar. He always rose in the morning, which is very painful, even for me at the young age that I am. And he did it immediately. Absolutely. One of the things you'll notice, actually, in the Hebrew is a funny little, like, almost a play on words, but not quite. Um, it says in that verse that he, when he ran to the cattle, um, it says, Ve'al habakar ratz. Now, if you, if you know anything about Hebrew, you know that the vowels don't exist. Um, and so there's different ways to look at it. And bakar has very similar lettering to boker, which is the word for morning. Mm-hmm. Notice that this morning when, jo- when Jonathan was reading that passage, I, think, I, hear, I hear the word and it's like, that sounds like morning. Which is funny because as you point out, that's one of the things that Abraham is very famous for doing. He's very, very quick to do good deeds, mostly by getting up early to make sure that they get done. And um, but one of the things I think that stands out, I want, as we're reading this passage, I want you to be doing a couple of things. We're discussing it. I want you to pay attention not only to what Abraham is doing, but I want you to pay attention to the contrasts that we see elsewhere. Because one of the things that I, uh, we, we were talking this past week in our study class about uh, the pathway of the just, and um, Taylor raised a really good question about how do you learn how to do ethics? I mean, scriptures inherently don't really describe in detail a lot of the commandments around ethics. That's the whole point of ethics. You have the mitzvot, or what you do, and the ethics kind of tell you how to do them. So where do you figure out how to do them? Well, you read passages like this. You read the narratives in the, in the Tanakh that give you, this is what righteous people do. Go and do likewise. And so this particular passage, I want you to, as we're reading, talking about it, con- be thinking about contrast in your mind between Abraham and Lot, and between Abraham and Lot and the people of Sodom. Because those are the big ones right there. Yes, Lord. To that point, um, it's interesting. Somewhere in the prophets, I don't remember where it is, talks about how the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Ooh. Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. Is it Ezekiel? Yeah. Was a lack of hospitality. Right. Mm-hmm. So that would be in stark contrast to Abraham here, who's a model of hospitality. Mm-hmm. Right. Like Bernie opening his home. Absolutely. Totally. That's that's exactly where we're going. Um, the idea that they uh, t- t- just to bounce off that it's the idea that um, you know it, it's ev- it's easy for the you know I, I grew up in church hearing that oh it's because of the the sexual sins and everything that they were engaging in and everything but the, the rabbis take a different different take and they say that it's because the, these cities were blessed with you know they had abundance of fruit and agriculture and 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 wealth and everything like that but they were stingy with it they mm-hmm. they they, they, exi- they um, to Lori's point, they exhibited the exact opposite qualities that Abraham Avinu right. was exhibiting. Right, and Abraham, one of the things that stands out here, and I want you to think about Lot in particular with regard to this. Not only is Abraham serving, and Abraham is, is like, he is top-notch, he is awesome. What else does he do? It says in verse 6, so Abraham hastened, there he goes running again, to the tent to Sarah and said, hurry, three sa'as of meal, fine flour, need to make cakes. Then Abraham ran to the cattle, took a calf, tender a good, and gave it to the youth who hurried to prepare it. What did you notice in that passage? How many people did we just mention? He's very good at delegating. Three. Well, not just good at delegating. Who's he delegating to? According to tradition, the youth there is Ishmael. So what is Abraham doing? He's not just a model. He's teaching. His family is being led to be, show the same hospitality, the same alacrity that he has. That line, well, I was just going to say that lines up because later in the portion when we hear that um, Hagar cried out, but it was the voice of the youth, yeah. Ishmael, right. in that case, that, that Hashem listened to. Right. And you had something to 
Um, I also uh, was reading that it, it all said not only what you just said about you know him teaching his family, but also that he did he, he had servants. He didn't want just anyone to make this food for his guests. He had his family to do it. That's pretty cool. It's very cool. And he included his family on like lots. Right, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking about with Lot. Is it's like because what does God say when God is describing what He's going to do to, Abel, to to Sodom and Gomorrah? He stops, and he he Hashem turns to the angels who are with him, or and says, "Can I can I hide this from Abraham?" And then He says, "For I have loved." And this is verse nineteen. For I have loved him because he commands his children and his household after them that they keep the way of Hashem, doing charity and justice in order that Hashem may then bring upon Abraham that which he had spoken of him. In other words, Lot, as my wife has correctly pointed out, is, is a great guy in, in many ways. And in many other ways, he's a crummy guy. But in some areas, he's pretty impressive. Um, and he has like a, a degree of righteousness that is laudable. But Lot's biggest failing is he does a horrible job teaching his family. And we're going to read that, or we've read that already. We're going to talk about it a little bit more when we get to it. But absolute disaster when it comes to his family. But Abraham, Abraham is more. And that's the thing about Judaism, is Judaism has both in them. Um, they, the importance of hospitality is huge. You go to Jerusalem to the Kotel, the Western Wall, on a Friday night, and you're a complete stranger, you could probably walk up to anybody wearing a kippah and ask if you could join them for Shabbat, and they would probably say yes. Because that's the culture. The culture is hospitality. The culture is ha- taking care of the needy. The culture is providing for people. But then at the same time, the culture is family. The culture is, is teaching the next generation. Those two things are, are in addition to the, to, the, to the mitzvot, those two things are like the pillars, I see you, pillars of, of Judaism. And that is what we get in Abraham here. Yes, sir. Um, to your point, and hospitality is letting your friend who has a headache sleep in your bed for like an hour. Mm. Thank you, Peter. Amen. Here we go. Is <laughs> that a headache? You want some more? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to do that hospitality thing. Uh, verse 19 of Genesis 18, as you have just as you just paraphrased, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And the word justice is mishpat. Hmm. We know this because we have a, a portion by the name Mishpat team, judge, uh, judgments. judgments and so forth. But I, I thought it curious that it appears that there's a word play going on. Because he's praising Abraham because he's teaching his children justice. And just a few verses later, in verse 25, when the Lord is about to wipe out Sodom, we get that word twice in the same verse. Hmm. Shall not the judge, Mishpat, of all the earth, uh, uh, Shafat, I beg your pardon, same, same root, of all the earth, do what is Mishpat, mishpat just. So it's, it's interesting. Um, and of course, you know, whittle it down, get to the ten, yada, yada, yada. Later on, uh, as we're getting to, when Lot, or Lot, um, tries to stop these heathens from taking these two men, what do they say? In verse 9 of chapter 19, but they said, these are the wicked men of the city, stand back. This fellow came to sojourn and he has become 
the judge. Mishpat. Shafat. So it, it all, I think, is to teach us that God is the judge. We should be teaching our children like that God is. is the judge yes. and acting like him that he does justice and we should be doing justice and we should be teaching our children to do justice. And of course, Lot was practicing this for those young men. Absolutely. Very cool. Yes, sir. Oh, it was a big point. It was just the idea that they won't really even let you near the hotel without a key on your head. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> um, my point being, if you have an actual key by not one of those paper ones, then you know, look for those people. Yes, sir. And hospitality is one of those cool exceptions because the Talmud actually says that as a man, you're supposed to spend like less than your means on food, your exact means on clothing, and then more than your means on children and your wife. Huh. But the only exception to that is, of course, hospitality. And Abraham really shows that. I mean, I'm sure they weren't eating goats every night. And, like, that, that's a, this this is a case, huge this is a deal. Calf. That's a big deal. Or, or yeah. The, the, this is, goat every night. I mean, this is a really big here, deal here. that he is preparing all of this food for guests. So yeah. it's like hospitality is always that really cool exception where you go above and beyond for your guests. Absolutely. I remember when I was in Israel, I got a chance to um, spend uh, the first night, a Shabbat night, um, of Sukkot with an Orthodox family in Jerusalem. And that was my first introduction to Abrahamic-style hospitality. Um, and I say that as an, as an extreme. Obviously, I've been around people who are hospitable before, but they, like, they take it to another level. You're sitting there and eating all this, you know, hummus and salad and all this different stuff, and you think to yourself, you know, they don't, they, they live in a poor neighborhood. I know this because I live in the same apartment building. This is a poor neighborhood. And so you don't expect, and they have multiple kids, and you never, uh, so, so you're sitting there like, you better, you know, eat up on the vegetables because there's probably not a whole lot left. Because vegetables in Israel, unlike in America, are dirt cheap. So no big deal. So if like eat some more pita, you know, it's kind of like here. If you get to, get to the table, it's like lots and lots of breads and vegetables. If you're the first in line, think maybe I should focus more on the things there's all abundance of. So I have the vegetables. Then, after that, they bring out the fish. And it's like, all right, there, there's the main meal. Had good fish. All right. Then comes the chicken. Okay. So it's like, wow. All right. That was, uh, okay, I got, I got to take some of it. You know, it's like, whew, that was, that was, that was great. We're going to do the little, like, you know, um, we're, we're done with that one. We're good. Then comes dessert, which is fruit. And it's like all this dried fruit and stuff. And of course, there's a blessing for each thing, which is also really cool anyway. But then it's like, so I mean, it's like, oh my word. I mean, we've gone through like four different courses of this family. And I mean, I, I, I knew enough to kind of get a general gist of what, what's going on. But I really don't know what I'm doing. And this, this, the dad is incredibly patient. He's explaining everything to me. He's having his kids chime in. What are, the, what are the guests that come, you know, the Ushpazine that come in on Shabbat for Sukkot? And they're, you know, rattling off. And he's explaining to me because he's assuming that I probably don't understand some of what they're saying. In some cases, he was right. And, you know, so basically it was like, there was, it was just unbelievable. And that's what I'm talking about here. Like, um, the, the cool part is, I'm, not, I'm really preaching at the choir because this group is remarkably good at hospitality. Um, there are, I have been to a lot of people's houses in this room, which you I have, have... You have hosted many. Well, thank you, sir. And, th and that, to me, is remarkable because I feel like prior to my experience in Israel, I very rarely got a chance to go to someone's house unless they were a really good friend. Um, and, I, and it's just so powerful to have someone in your home. So um, I really see the beauty and the brilliance in that, and um, I commend you for what you have done and encourage you to, to keep doing it. Somewhat related note, should you find yourself in Jerusalem without a place to go on Shabbat, 
go down to the hotel, if you're looking at it to the far left, there's a whole bunch of people ask for Jeff, and they literally have a guy who has arranged all these people who will host random strangers, and they will put you in a home for Eric Shabbat. That is so cool. Wow. Very cool. Speaking of um, mediation, the next section in this passage is also really cool. Because um, Abraham goes to God, and he asks God to spare Sodom. Now, this is a pretty big deal. Because as the commentary here points out that, that <laughs> Sodom's not a nice place. And Abraham is actually asking God to restrain his justice from wiping out a very bad place. That Abraham actually loves the wicked. The wicked, really bad people. Enough to ask God to have mercy on them. And the sages also go out and they contrast Abraham with Noah. Noah, who we just read about a while ago, according to tradition also preached to the people around him. Um, but Noah has this many disciples. Zero. Nobody listens to Noah. And the sages go, okay, <laughs> Abraham is, is pretty impressive, but he had like 318 guys. Like, what's up with Noah here? Why is he so unsuccessful? They say the secret was Abraham was cared, cared legitimately about the people. And the proof is he prayed for them. Mm-hmm. Noah did it because you're supposed to. It wasn't that he was doing a wrong thing, but that he didn't have the same heart towards the people around him. So he preached to them, you know, maybe hoping they'd repent, but he didn't really care the way that you need to. And if you've ever interacted with, I see a couple of hands here, um, if you've ever interacted with somebody who is, um, you can tell the difference between, an, like, I mean, from my church days, you can tell the difference between an evangelist who's there because they love the sinners around them, and they really want them to repent. And the evangelist who's there because it's the right thing to do. The evangelist there for the right thing to do tends to be condescending, they tend to be judgmental, they tend to be sometimes even nasty, and it's like you're obviously not bringing anybody to the kingdom of God. The, 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 the evangelist-style person who's a lot more caring and gentle, sometimes they'll, they'll refrain from saying things because they, they know it's not the right time or whatever the case may be, and they just ooze that care and that love for the people around them. And it's just different. And that's what we see here with Abraham. Abraham prays for the wicked, and that shows a different level of care for them. Yes, sir? In contrast to the hospitality that Abraham shows to the three messengers, Hashem himself, and he speaks in, I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's waiting on them, he's speaking to them in kind tones. The language beginning in chapter 18 actually is, or excuse me, chapter 19, is actually, the Hebrew actually is, is well, it's actually great, starting verse 16. The Hebrew there is actually abrupt and confrontational. Abraham speaking to God is actually not rude, but full of chutzpah. He's not merely, he's not being polite. He's actually demanding that there be justice. Hmm. It sounds a lot like uh, Moses, who steps in between God and the people. Which shows that Abraham is not merely, uh, I mean, Abraham is fulfilling the role of a redeemer. Right. Yeah. Cool guy. Yes, sir. This is like one of at least two I can think of examples where Abraham like prays for something and then he gets blessed with that very thing. So in this case, he prays that he prays that all these people will be spared and then all the nations come from him. And then the same with like he prays that the ability to bear children would be restored to Abimelech and his household. And then Isaac yeah. is born. 
That's a really good point. Judaism also teaches that if you want something, you should ask for the other people to be blessed with the same thing. Yeah. It's that same idea, that you have the compassion and God responds in kind. Yes, Lori? Um, when you think of, when Yeshua said, go back to the um, Abraham loving the wicked and praying for the one Noah, kind of like, was just all about justice. Let's think about Yeshua, he says, you know, um, well, blessed and merciful, of course, then it must be mercy. But also how he says, um, you know, if your enemy, you know, you've heard it said, love your enemies, or love your neighbor and pray for the. Hate your enemies. Hate your enemies, thank you. And um, if I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So he's like, Kind of giving Abraham's the example here, maybe you should have referenced it. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. And of course, um, I think about Apostolic scriptures, they also get referenced to here. Uh, the book of Hebrews talks about hospitality and says mm-hmm. some of them have entertained angels unawares, mm-hmm. which of course would be referring to this particular passage. <laughs> so, um, one of the things that stands out, we get to the very end of Abraham's plea, and he asks, he whittles it all the way down to ten people. Um, he, all, all God needs to find is ten righteous people he'd spare Sodom, Gomorrah, and all the little cities around it. Um, I want, we're going we're gonna to skip around just a little bit here. I want to flip ahead to chapter 19 because I want to play a little math game with you all. Um, chapter 19 and verse 12, well actually verse 14. So Lot, Lot uh, gets visited by the two angels who just seen Abraham. They come down, check out Sodom and Gomorrah. We know the whole story, we just read it. Um, when they're in there and they realize they have seen firsthand how bad Sodom and Gomorrah is, it's time to wipe it out. They tell Lot, go, and it's verse 14. Um, they tell him to go get, well, I'm sorry, chapter 19, verse 14. Um, they tell him to go get his, his family. And it says in 14, so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, that's a plural, and the and in the I have a little parentheses box here, so saying and the betrothed of his daughter. So according to the interpretation here from the art scroll, there's two sets: the sons-in-law, who are inherently already married to his daughters, and the betrothed of his daughters, who are not yet married to his daughters. Now let's let's think about the math. We've got Lot, we've got his wife, we've got the two daughters that go with him, presuming that those two daughters are the ones who have betrothed. We're now up to six. Then we have the sons-in-law, that's two more, and they must be married to somebody, so that's ten. If Lot had simply done what Abraham does in teaching his family, he has ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And thinking about, like, the, and that, I don't take claim complete credit for that. I originally heard that from Precept Ministries. Remember, uh, I was at a camp there, and their teacher pointed that out. It's amazing. It really is. Because think about, talking about evangelism a second ago. You know, the greatest evangelists in the world sometimes lose their own families. If you just start at home, the impact that you make is dramatic. I mean, this group is amazing. If everyone related to me is here, we practically have a minion. I mean, my father-in-law, I've got multiple brothers-in-law, my brother, my dad, and then if my brother from Oklahoma were here, we would have like nine, well, I guess with nine guys, I think at that point, and that's before Mary's gotten married. So eventually, um, I mean, the opportunity is there for like an entire minion just from people that share blood with me. That's amazing. But that's the point. You start at home, you teach and train and grow the family at home, and you can change everything around you there. Lot doesn't do that. And that is the ultimate tragedy, I think, in the story. 
That's well done, son-in-law. So, again, looking at repeated words, uh, as we did with justice, this portion opens with Sarah laughing. Mm-hmm. And three times there, why did Sarah laugh? No, but you did laugh, etc. And then we, we move down, and the next time we see laughing is, is what? The sons-in-law. The sons-in-law did, yeah. It says in, in my Bible, it says jesting, but it's the same word. Um, mm. it's, it's jesting or laughing. Um, I, you know, I've been, I've been accused in the past of being a little hard on my sons-in-laws no. as they were becoming no. sons-in-laws. No. Sons-in-law. Look, no. No. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll be darned if any of them have ever thought that I was just kidding. Well, that's true. That hasn't happened. Now, interestingly enough, if you move down a little bit to the whole um, birth of uh, Isaac, as you know, that means laughter. And laughter is all over there as we talk about Sarah and she's so happy and laughing and so forth. But the laughing comes up again because that's exactly what Ishmael Mm -hmm. was doing, laughing. So it's not that laughter is a bad thing, but there's times when laughing is a good thing, and there's other times when laughing Not appropriate. Yeah, it's not only not appropriate, but it could be that you're just not serious enough about your faith. Right. And that's, I think, where, to your point, where Lot was at. He, he obviously had faith. He obviously had some great things going for him. But within his own family, what really counts, I mean, if you count uh, even just the bare things that we see here, not only did he lose the two sons-in-law, he also lost his own wife. Right. He, does, he doesn't turn out so well. Um, Lot, to his credit, the, sa- the sages point out that he is somewhat heroic in this story. Um, he's willing to host people. Sodom and Gomorrah is a dangerous place to host people. And according to tradition, as, as we pointed out already, the, the, the scriptures in Tanakh, prophets, talk about the hospitality as being their main sin. Tradition says that the homosexuality and gang rape that was going on in this chapter is actually part of the same problem. It's not that they just spiraled down and kept getting worse and worse. It's that the the sexual violence was one of their means of discouraging guests from coming to their city, um, which is really sick. Um, but actually, according to one tradition, I couldn't find it in my Hamash, but according to one tradition I've heard, the, the outcry of Sodom was previous to this. Um, according to tradition, there was a woman uh, in Sodom. I think she was burned alive, but it may have been another rape and die kind of thing. I can't remember the exact story, but she dies. And God responds to that cry, and that's why he sends his angels to go check it out, to see what's really going on. Well, before. That, is that why the sages chose the king's passage? I thought it was because of the sun. This time next year. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know there's yeah. several reasons you know, in what we read. Um, but yeah, all right. But so the so in other words, there's like there's a woman here who's uh, who's involved in the part of the story, and actually, if you if you read other parts of the Tanakh, you will find a, a lot of parallels 
um, in in the scriptures. And that woman, keep that in mind, because when you go over to the book of Judges, we have an unfortunate tale that parallels this almost exactly um, in the story of the Benjamites. Um, and the woman there, um, also, same deal. Woman shows up, concubine, with these guests. They show up in a town. They want to stay in the square. The guy, the guy hosting them says, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Stay with me. And a group of crazy guys shows up at their house, says, come on out. You know, They say no, but you can take this woman instead. They send the concubine out, and she's abused, and she dies. That is absolutely unacceptable. I'm just... Yeah, unbelievably bad. So apparently the guy is a coward, and now his concubine is dead. Really sick. Um, the story, though, gets worse for Israel, because... After all of this happens, after all this horror happens, they have to they have to respond justly to this outcry in the bunch of the Benjamites. So they tell the Benjamites, "Hey, send those bad dudes out to us." And the Benjamites, you know, talk about you know talk about being a little maybe a little too close to family. Says, "No, if you want them, you can come get them yourself." So Israelite bands together, all the the rest of the tribes of Israel, they come down and they launch war on their own brothers, the Benjamites. Battle goes back and forth, both sides lose people, and in the end, at the end of the story, they almost wipe out the entire tribe of Benjamin. And they had end up um, coming up with a really creative way to send out some of their, you know, young marriage eligible ladies out to go sing and dance in the fields, and the Benjamite men basically take their pick. This is the first bachelor bachelorette show um, uh, that they ever had, and um, and that is how ultimately the tribe of Benjamin survives. Because they'd wiped out basically everybody else, um, and then they took a vow that they couldn't willingly give their daughters to them. Yes, you. Um, now, what's cool about this story is that this year I'm also parallel reading in the book in the Gospels, um, just kind of on my own, very slow pace. And it so happens that this year the readings kind of lined up. If you go to the very end of Luke, we see some odd similarities between the book of Luke and this Torah portion. Um, the very first thing that we should notice uh, in the resurrection story of Yeshua is that the women, when they arrive at the tomb, meet two angels. Two angels is a really weird number. In fact, I, I don't, I, forgive me, I may have forgotten on any other occasion, but I can't think of any other time in the entire Tanakh where two angels show up. Sodom. Besides, Sodom and Gomorrah. Was it two? Well, there's Herovim, it's plural. Well, we'll take that, as two. that could be, but either way, like, generally speaking, there there are multiple angels, like there are groups of angels that show up all the time, and there are single angels, and there are a couple in different directions, but very rarely do two show up together with the same mission. According to Judaism, each angel has its own mission, so why would you need two to do the same thing? So, at the tomb, God, who believes in His own word, sent two witnesses to testify that Yeshua is alive, but He sends two angels, which is exactly like this passage. Well, there are two angels that go to Sodom and Gomorrah. It gets weirder than that because, of course, um, as the story progresses, uh, who thinks the women hear the story from the angels? They go back to the disciples, and what do they think? You're joking! I don't believe you. Um, and a couple of the guys decide to wander off towards Emmaus. They leave. Yeshua meets them, and he starts chatting with them and discussing with them. And at the end of his discussion about the Messiah, it says that he would go on, but they urged him to stay with them. Which reminds me again a lot of the angels, the two angels that show up at Lot, and he urges them, and Abraham too urges them to spend time with him. Then, at the end of it, it says up until that point that their eyes had been blinded, and that they give Yeshua bread to break. What does Lot feed them? 
He feeds them matzah. But what also happens in the Sodom and Gomorrah story? When the Sodomites try to take over Lot's house, the angels blind all of the guys. But what's cool about this story in the apostolic writings is that when Yeshua breaks the bread, instead of it blinding them, their eyes are open. open. So the opposite has happened. Now, what would make this story particularly cool is just the parallels by itself. But then you have to think about the location. Where did Yeshua die? He died in Jerusalem. Now, what's really odd about the tribal partitioning of the property is everyone thinks Jerusalem is in Judah, but it's not. It's in Benjamin. Now, I've had some trouble figuring out where Emmaus is. There's some discussion where it was. There is at least one tradition that it may actually be also in the tribe of Benjamin. So what is Yeshua doing here? Yeshua is undoing the sin of the Benjamites. The tikkun. Because the Benjamites had paralleled what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. So Yeshua and God also parallel what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. But now it's flipped. Now, instead of eyes being blinded and people dying, now we have resurrection and we have the eyes being opened. Um, I see a whole bunch of hands, so I'm going to have to bounce around. I think I had you first. Oh, I was just pointing out, I was going to say to that point that it's cool that Abraham just was a giver. Like a, he, he fulfilled his mission as a man, as being a giver. And in the cases of the people in Sodom, like all they wanted to do was receive. Like they didn't even care oh, right. what people's names were or anything like that. It was just all about their lusts of the flesh. And so it was just a, sort of the parallel between like the men that were actually fulfilling their mission in life and the ones that weren't. Right. Absolutely. Abraham is the exact opposite. And the, did you have your hand up? Briefly, um, on the Benjamin issue, I think it's really neat. Because on one hand, you kind of think that's a little bit crazy for them to go civil war against the tribe or just for re- any reason. But then think about, like, all throughout Deuteronomy, <clears throat> Hashem commands us, like, if your brother or even the woman or the whoever's in your bosom, like, tries to go astray, like, you mm-hmm. don't go with them. Like, Deuteronomy you design that. And I think that's, it's kind of harsh in a way. And even Yeshua says, you know, if you, you, you don't love, if you don't hate your brother and sister and your mother and father, like, you're not going to be my disciple. So, in a sense, like, one's allegiance for Hashem has to come first. And that's kind of cool how you brought up the tikkun that Yeshua brought. Because Hashem's ultimate um, goal really is his restoration. He doesn't mm-hmm. want to just be justice. Mm-hmm. He wants the, um, the restoration to come up. And he wants that, but that's his job. Right. Which I think is kind of cool. So if we trust him and we mm-hmm. follow with him, because I think if we have misplaced justice or misplaced mercy, like if we have misplaced mercy, right, then that can be a problem. It can be. It can go both ways. If you have justice without Abraham mercy and mercy was, without justice. So then Abraham's mercy was Sodom, but then, I don't know. Right. But see, I think the thing is, it's all about, I think one thing that's really helpful with, as far as, um, as we as we talk about um, ethics and try to figure out one of the things that, um, my father-in-law pointed out this past week that that was really cool was the idea that like the the good and evil is not like on each side of a spectrum and you're trying really hard not to do this so you do this instead it's the idea that good is balanced good is like in the middle and then evil is trying to get you out of balance in one direction or the other and i think that one thing that really helps with being in the right balance is knowing your role and your place my place as a son puts me in a totally different, more submissive position and humility than my place as a husband. And so I have to be different in this way 
depending on what role I'm playing. And I think we see that with you're, you're talking about. It's like when you are the judge, your mercy has to be tempered by justice. But when you are an observer, your justice really has to be tempered by mercy. It's like just kind of making it goes to where you're at and what you're doing. Yes, sir. Just back to Abraham as he pleads for Sodom and Gomorrah. There is a there is a, a tradition that he's actually pleading not only because he's the good guy that we know that he is and that he's merciful and that he's interested in justice, but also in addition to that that he's prophetic and that he knows that Sodom has a significant role in the Messianic age. And we, in fact, see in the book of Ezekiel that, that Sodom is restored. We, we anticipate, when we read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we see it as utter destruction. And yet, the prophets tell us very clearly that Sodom will be inhabited again. And the Idrash says that, that Sodom, that, that God found David, that he found Mashiach in Sodom. And that we, we recognize that in the restoration, that God is interested in tikkun, where he takes the evil actions of men, mm-hmm. and he turns them around, and he actually has, he reveals his greatest redemption in the most despicable of actions of men. Mm-hmm. Where Sodom is earthly, God restores Sodom to be a, a, a spiritual haven, where, uh, where Lot's daughters behave wickedly. God brings Messiah through the offspring. Mm-hmm. That's true. God is all about fixing. I've got a bunch of hands, but Rebecca, I believe I forgot you for a while ago. Did you want to say anything? No, nope, I'm good. Okay. So, yes, sir. I was just going to say, to that point, that uh, the things that will be repaired, there's only two that Midrash say that won't be restored in, in the world to come, and that's the snake. It, it will not be restored to walking us. <laughs> exactly. And the Gibeonites. And Tricksters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. Huh. Interesting. So those are the only, so that the world should, you know, eventually in the Messianic era, it will be re- restored to the way it was in the time of the Garden of Eden, but except for those two things. Yeah, the guys seduce people to evil. Yeah. Mm. Don't trick people into evil. Mm-hmm. Scary stuff. Millstone around the neck and exactly. all that jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just going to uh, note that I saw this year um, when Lot goes to his sons-in-law and tells them to leave. They think he's joking. But it seems to me that they might have thought he was joking because it doesn't look like he believed it himself. Hmm. Because later on it says still he lingered. Mm-hmm. The <laughs> men had to pull him right. out of the city. Well, why would he be lingering if he actually believed that the city would be destroyed? I'd be getting out of there as quickly as possible if I believed that. Right. If he didn't really believe it, then I think it's a lot more believable that his relatives wouldn't Ooh. believe him either. He doesn't believe it himself. Uh, good point. Very good point. <laughs> Yeah, and what is he? What's he missing? Alacrity. We actually saw that earlier. Exactly. Yeah, he's missing alacrity. But I'm not just saying that. He really. We see it earlier uh, when 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 Moses when Abraham sees the guests, he runs to them. But what does it say in chapter 19, verse one? Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom, and now Lot saw and stood up to meet them. In other words, they came to him. They came to him. So like, see the contrast there. Um, Lot, again, like I said, I don't want to dislote too hard because I think sometimes he gets a really bad rap. He does good things. And there are elements of Lot's character that are admirable. But I think we also par- contrast him with Abraham so we can see some of that musar, some of that ethics. There's a way to do something good, and then there's a way to do something really good. And it's like Lot did the right thing a lot of the times, but he didn't always do it the right way. And Abraham did both. 
Yes, sir. Lot was righteous, but he wasn't right. <laughs> right. <coughs> Clearly, the best way to lead is to be out. Hmm. To your father's point, Ezekiel chapter 16, picking up in verse 46, your elder sister is Samaria, who lived with your daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister, who lived to the south of you, is Sidon, with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations within a very little time, you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, to Johnny's point, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Right. Mm -hmm. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. You've committed more abominations than they, and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters. Because of your sins in which you acted more abom abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. I will restore the fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, and I will restore your own fortunes in their midst, that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. As for your sister Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state, and you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Amen. Good news. Um, a fishing village in Pengate. Right, the Dead yeah. Sea, where there is only salt. Um, Colby, do you have a comment? I saw that hand. Yeah. Um, when I was, I was reading that Abraham is, is interceding on the people. So essentially, thinking about the story, he goes like fifty, and then he goes forty-five, and he goes forty, thirty, twenty, ten. So the question is, why does he go from fifty to forty-five? And Rashi says that essentially in, in Sodom there are five cities. Um, kind of like it would be like New York, New York. So it was like Sodom, Sodom, but there's like other cities there. Right. Um, so 50 people would be 10, 10 people per city, which would which would make them righteous. You're good to go. So the question is, why does Abraham ask 45? That would leave nine people in each city. And Rashi says that here Abraham is showing his um, knowledge of God's omnipresence. So the the commentary says. If, if God, if there were 45 people, nine persons per city, then you, the all-righteous, omnipresent one, could be counted among them, and it would be as if there were ten. And he says that God would preserve them if there were nine. And then it goes off, and essentially it ends with God would preserve any city if there were nine people. Um, because when Noah, Noah wasn't enough to preserve, he was just preserved his family because he had eight people but God would have preserved nine and he most certainly would have preserved ten um, if they were if they were righteous that's very cool well I, I believe I have that... a question though oh go ahead um, so I, I hear that Lodes is righteous I have trouble seeing it and even this year I have a lot of trouble seeing it um, so I'm my question is I appreciate we're seeing all his good qualities but I'm not really reading them here, because Rashi says that the reason that Lot was, they were told not to look back as they were leaving, 
because the angels are pretty much saying, you're not worthy to see the wicked destroyed because you're not righteous. The only reason you're being saved is in the merit of Abraham. That's true. So Lot's wife, in arrogance, looks back, and then she's struck dead because she didn't have the privilege of seeing the wicked destroyed because she herself was wicked. Versus Abraham, who walks Versus out and Abraham. sees the plane afterwards. No, I agree that Lot, Lot's not... A, a, I mean, when I say that Lot is righteous, I'm quoting from... Um, the apostolic writing, Second yeah. Peter. Well, um, I'm paraphrasing. Actually, I think Johnny brought up a good point. Righteous, but not upright. There's a difference. Right. He does good things, and I think we see that in this passage. But he's clearly not a really good guy, and he and there is levels. I mean, Abraham. He's saved in the merit of Abraham. Abraham is because of Abraham they saved Lot. But God makes a point saying that in the in the later in one of the um, I see you oh, I see you um, and you. And there is another uh, uh, section talking about God wiping out the people of Israel. And he's like, even if these super righteous guys like Noah and Job and Daniel were in your midst, they would only save themselves. They couldn't even save their own families. And so the point is that, like, um, there is something to be said for not only your mediator, but also what you need mediation in. And it's like for them, um, for this particular situation, uh, Lot's righteousness did not merit to see the destruction of Sodom because he was a lower level. Abraham's righteousness was so great that he was actually meritorious enough to be the, the, the mediator, as it were, on behalf of Lot. So that so again, it's like you want to talk about you know finding a rabbi and, and attaching yourself to the right the right righteous dude, right? Um, that's really important. I mean, that's one reason I think well, we're blessed with Yeshua because then it's like you have the ultimate righteous guy, so you have the ultimate mediator. Um, but you're right; there are different layers and levels. That, that are worth considering on that. Um, and I think I see, I think I saw Peter and then Judah and then my mom. So, Well, just to the, uh, to the lot is righteous point, because we talked about that in Zadie class a little bit. Mm -hmm. The verse in Hebrew says, Lot's righteous soul was vexed. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so I think just in Zadie class, it was brought up that it's possible that Lot wasn't righteous. Like was discussed here because the the Tanakh doesn't really say much about him being righteous. Just that one verse, and so it's his soul, his the righteous, righteous soul. The, soul, the righteous soul he you put within me. Like the very yeah, the very yeah. core of, of of him is righteous because it's it's a which is a spark, head. right? A spark of the divine. So that would be vexed in living in True. the midst of Sodom. Right. Yeah. Good point. That's another way to look at it. Whereas the, the wicked didn't have a spark. <laughs> <laughs> they were stamping it out, so God decided to light their fire. <laughs> um, Judah. So, in Love's Wife turning around, does that make her a seasoned veteran? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> Mom. <laughs> I will follow that with scripture. <laughs> I, I was thinking of Second Peter, because I was curious what it actually said. Chapter 2. And, yes. And um, it says, Delivers righteous lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling was tormented in his righteous soul day to day by searing, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. And he goes on to talk about others who sin. So I do think that. We all have seen people who are overcome by what they read in the next book. Mm -hmm. And so mm. 
Lot was given a righteousness that he was never overcome. That's true. By what he lived amongst, and that he remained aware that their godless actions were truly godless. And so I think that was why he was redeemed, in that he, right. he maintained a steadfastness, even though he was surrounded by it. He obviously didn't move out of it. No. Mm. <laughs> he didn't do very good with his family. But it, at least God did maintain in him a sense of godliness in the midst of, the, of what he was in. At least in some areas. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got a couple of hands here. I think you were first. Yes. Um, to, to Janet's point. Second uh, Peter chapter two verses four through ten is a paragraph that um, back to many of the classes that uh, Rick has taught us. Everything in there, everything, is all about our actions. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So we begin with God did not spare the angels when they sinned; they did something. We can talk about that. That's different. Um, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. What did he do? He was a herald. He heralded righteousness and went from there. Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction because they were ungodly. They did ungodly things. He rescued righteous Lot, who was distressed, because his, and so on. Um, but we see in the Tanakh that he did practice hospitality. Mm-hmm. So he did some good things. Um, the bottom line is verse 9 the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous those whose deeds are not righteous under punishment until the day of judgment especially those who indulge that's a doing thing the lust of defiling passion and despise authority Uh, we don't like to talk about it in the church but this paragraph is talking about what we do not what we believe not what we say but what we do. It's as simple as that. And, you know, it's harsh for the folks that believe that they've got a place in the world to come because of what they believe, but live like hell or don't act like righteous people. Right. It's as simple as that. I, mean, you know, it's, I know that's tough, but that's the bottom line. And right? the, I mean, just one last point. Lot was practicing hospitality. He was. Lot, whether he did it quickly with alacrity and dispatch <laughs> or not, he brought those men into his house. He did. And he was willing to sacrifice even his virgin daughters to protect those guests. Do I agree with that? <laughs> Certainly not. He should have had a handgun. I get it. <laughs> Seriously. But you know what? Right. He was right. willing to live under the rule of his day, which said, you come under my roof, you will be protected. Right. And quite frankly, I live under that. That's why I got a handgun on my head. Because right. you can't have my virgin daughter. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Don't love that. <laughs> um, yes, exactly. And I think that Amen. thinking about um, living amongst evil and, and praying for evil or for evil people, um, you need to be in prayer about this country. I mean, this, this week, uh, of all times to be reading this in the news, I saw the most disturbing thing um, that a 90-year-old man yeah. was cited... <sighs> For breaking the law because he was feeding the homeless. In Florida, in I think Fort Lauderdale, it's actually against the law to feed the homeless. If you don't have a toilet there. There's, there's, yeah, there's there's several several things. One of the biggest ones is to have a Right, they do have soup kitchens. The point is, though. Which the 90-year-old guy said he thought was the city's responsibility. And I think he's right. (laughs) But the... (laughs) 
But the point just I'm getting to is that, like, if you look at what the, the, the sages say about Sodom and Gomorrah, the two areas that they highlight are that they did not feed the starving and that they refused to give alms to the poor. Well, this particular city, and regardless of how the rule is couched, finds a way to prevent people from feeding the homeless. Exactly. And they also prevent panhandling, which is giving alms to the poor. So my point simply being is I understand that we don't like to have poor people um, lingering, loitering in areas, that, you know, in public places and whatever else. And I understand that there might be ways to perhaps, like, focus that at some level to try and, you know, keep certain parks open and whatever else. I mean, I, I understand that there needs to be some rule and order. However, when I read things like that, I can't help but think about Sodom. Because Sodom and Gomorrah's problem was that they were wealthy and they refused to share. And I think that when they lived in Israel, in Israel they don't hide the, the sketchy, sad, poor people. I mean, our country does an amazing job. You live in a huge city. Charlotte has like a million people and you would have no idea anyone is anything less than middle class. Unless you go into a really dingy part of town. But downtown Jerusalem, you've got people covered in their own filth, sticking a hand out. In the midst of the tourist areas, because which gets irritating. <laughs> but the point being is that the, that the Jewish people understand that we don't we don't need to hide the the sad parts of our society. We need to help them, and I think that that's something that stands out here. And that again, I'm not I don't I don't know enough of the rules. And forgive me if I speak any way slanderously against Fort Lauderdale. My point is simply being that that attitude sounds way too close to Sodom. And, and it gets me thinking that we need to be praying for our own country and also making sure that our own lives are hospitable and generous in, in hopes of setting some sort of an example. Amen. So I know I've got see so, multiple hands. Laurie, I think you were first. Um, one point was from a while ago, and then the point was recently, so I'll say this recently first. To the point of panhandlers, Taylor's been reading a lot of Breslau um, teachings, which is um, part of the... Yeah. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a branch of Judaism that's really into like joy and doing the result of joy and um, it's a reading version of the description. But one thing they talk about with panhandlers, like if somebody asks you for money, it's Hashem putting that person in your path, not for that person's sake, but for your sake. Mm -hmm. Like to soften your hardness of heart and your anger, actually, they say. And like a way of like by you giving to that person, it's suppressing your own anger of, like, they don't deserve it, or they should just get a job, or whatever excuse you give, or they're going to just spend it on whatever. It's like, Hashem's put that person there to test you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's just an interesting thing for that. Um, yeah. And then, secondly, kind of going back to the idea of the 45, 50 to 45 righteous people, um, there's another example of that in the Tanaka of Hashem being counted among people of when the tribes descend to Egypt. Mm -hmm. right? You count up the number of people that mm -hmm. descend, and it's like 69, but it says 70. So one of the theories mm -hmm. of who that, you know, maybe it's this, uh, one of the theories is maybe it's Hashem himself. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's very cool. Very cool. Absolutely. God is counted among us. And I think I saw you and uh, Gloria, did you have a comment? Yeah, it was kind of a question. Um, Zadik, mm -hmm. you're righteous. Maybe there are other words for righteous as well in Hebrew. I don't know. Um, but in the church, you're taught righteous meant right relationship with God. Mm. Okay. So my question is really, does Zadik 
line up with that thought? Is that a correct thought? Or well, I think that when you study the 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 um, the acts of a tzaddik, that the righteous deeds, um, what you'll find is that um, ultimately, the, if there's a, if I could summarize all of the righteous deeds in Scripture, it is acting like God, mm-hmm. and and really. Um, so in that respect, the church is not so far off in the idea that you want to be right with God. If you don't have a relationship with God, something is broken in your righteousness because that is really the point, is you're doing good deeds as part of a relationship with Hashem. At the same time, I think the danger that oftentimes happens in the church, at least in some of the experiences that I've had, and I don't want to speak too broadly, but in some situations I've seen, is there's a tendency to say right with God is more about the fact that you and God are cool, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, God forgave me, we're all good, you know, we're good. Jesus is my own boy. Or we have, or at least we have, or maybe maybe, maybe it's not, maybe more or less callous than that, you could say that you're right with God in the sense that, like, you and God have some level of relationship. The thing is, though, relationship without obedience isn't really relationship, because it would be kind of like if you were really good friends with somebody who had a peanut allergy, and you kept serving them peanuts every time they came over to your house. It's like, you know, you might say you two are really good friends, but you're not acting like it. You are obviously either oblivious to what they need, or you just don't care. And that, I think, is the danger of the right-with-God treatment of the concept of righteousness. Being righteous is, is like I tried to describe it, it is having relationship with God, which is demonstrated by acting like God. You know, if you've see, ever seen um, a little boy who absolutely adores his father, he tries everything he can to be like dad. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is what righteousness really should look like. If it's anything less than that, on either side, whether it's just doing good deeds but not really connecting with God in any way, or whether it's, you know, maybe being really spiritual or trying to, like, talk to God but really not doing what he says, something is out of whack. Something is broken. Yeah. My perception was righteous. Love. A right relationship with God would be obedient to right. what His Word says. Absolutely. So it, is, does that line up then with Sadiq? Well, I mean, Sadiq um, is an interesting word because actually, in some cases, uh, it's re- it's used for the word for charity. I mean, Sadaka, okay. same thing. It's the same root. Um, in other words, it's like it's doing the right thing. Really, zad- righteousness from that word is really much more centered around. Uh, around actions um, specifically. But to your point, um, I think that a true tzaddik, someone who does righteous de- things, is someone who also has a right relationship with God. They, they are connected. The disconnect, though, is, is usually where the church interprets, interprets that. I remember the talk that Jeremy Gentel gave when he, was, when he visited here a couple years ago and, and he posed the question, what, what are the commandments? And they are connection to Hashem. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a big disconnect with that in the, where the church thinks. It can be true. Yes, sir. Well, it, I, was, I was kind of with Colby in that it was really hard to find like something good that Lot did, and that was a good pointing that out, my father-in-law, about the uh, hospitality. But to Mrs. Perlock's point, too, the, uh, the, two, the first two character traits in Mesilat Yisharim are like vigilance or watchfulness and then alacrity or zeal depending on your translation and 
the author suggests that one of them deals, the first one, watchfulness, deals specifically with negative commandments, so avoiding doing negative things, uh, okay. avoiding doing evil. And then the second one deals with actually doing the commandments with zeal and alacrity, so doing the positive ones. And that made so much more sense with Lot that, like, oh, well, yeah, he's living with all these people, but he wasn't doing the same things. Because I was really struggling to be like, ah, okay. how in the world is this guy righteous? But it's really that like he probably avoided doing a lot of evil that he could have been doing mm-hmm. given his circumstances. Right. So that just really helped a lot. Focus on what you don't do, but not doing so well on things you should do. Right, because Abraham is the perfect example of doing the positive ones as well as avoiding the negative ones. Mm-hmm. But here, he's just doing a, probably a very good job of, of avoiding the negative ones. Good point. Um, I think my dad and then Pete. Oh, uh, well, just uh, just your point about Jerusalem and the poor is is a really good point because and Laurie mentioned that the poor are in, in a way a gift to the righteous, right? Because it gives us an opportunity to, to express our thankfulness to what God's done for us. Yeshua said multiple times, "You will always have the poor," mm-hmm. and and it's not like we 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 seem to measure the 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 uh, the, the riches of a nation based upon its lack of visible poor. Mm-hmm. In fact, in fact, as you know, in Jerusalem, uh, the wealth actually there's great wealth in Jerusalem, and yet it seems like the the poor are not outcasts. I mean, it's not like well, there's the poor, and we just we don't pay attention to them because people do pay attention to them. Mm-hmm. They are constantly, even to the point of recognizing that sometimes the poor are not always poor, mm-hmm. and yet there's no shunning of them. Recognition that even the the dishonest poor. Mm-hmm have to be treated as if they're poor, and mercy shown to them. So people give alms, people give charity to the poor people around them all the time. Hmm. Good point. Very good point. Yes, Pete? You can't do that to me. you got you got to talk now. I'm just trying to remember what I was going to say. Sorry. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, because to Mr. Spurlock's, no, to Greg's point about, uh, what was he saying? About lots. Start over. About good and bad commandments. The good and the bad. I heard from a rabbi one time that um, that if you if you are in a group of people, if you're in a group of people, if you're in a group of people and they're all going to do something bad, but you don't do it. Then, and the same is true if they all don't want to do the right thing, and you do the right thing anyway. There's this. Uh, there's this this concept that uh, the reward that they were all going to get goes to you mm. um, for e- every one of them as if they had done the right thing but it all goes to you because you did the right thing on behalf of all of them mm. that's really cool and that's then, pretty cool uh, so Lot got all the reward of all the stuff right so Lot was kind of because because there's a lot of merit in doing nothing when you're surrounded by evil exactly that's, mm. that is your Abadah in that case um, okay I had something else about Mr. Spurlock's point, but it doesn't matter anymore. Uh-huh. I can't uh-huh. remember. Tell us later. Yes, sir. Uh, just so we're clear, since since righteousness has come up, the first mention of righteous is no. No, it's righteous man. Yes. Right. And in you know right after that, um, Noah was a righteous man. I've seen. God says, I've seen that you are righteous before me. Well, how, how does that work? Unless it has to do with an outward action. I have seen it. He can see our heart too. 
Well, we can read our targets. <laughs> so the, the next time you, you, you get righteous at all in the Bible is the passage we're in right now. Hmm. And oddly enough, um, we're about to read about uh, Abimelech. Remember, he had not approached Sarah. That is, he had not done something unrighteous. Is D. And that's exactly what he says to God. Lord, would you kill an innocent people? Well, the word there is not innocent. The word is righteous. Hmm. Would you kill a tzaddik? Hmm. Would you do that? Because to Peter's point, it's not just what we do, it's also what we choose not to do. Right. And actually, it says, God says there, I have restrained you. Um, right. And it stopped you. And, of course, in this case, I presume that was by stopping him up. He was feeling really icky. And when you're not feeling well, nothing's oh, yeah, happening. Was, was it guys, too? I didn't realize uh, It was the whole... Oh, yeah. Every... In other words, if you ever... If people... I it was every orifice of the women. I heard a, I heard a classic story. I had a, I had a classic story, story one time about some guy making fun of a Jewish guy who has the blessing for going to the bathroom. Right. And the Jewish guy... The guy mocks him, then later has some, you know, terrible... Uh, constipation, whatever else, and the Jewish guy is like, don't you wish you could say that blessing now? <laughs> yeah. It's like, so the point is, um, apparently, according to tradition, everybody stopped up in every possible way in uh, amongst the Abimelech's <laughs> crew. And actually, this is good on two parts. One, God prevents him from doing evil, uh, which is really kind of cool, because according to uh, Jewish tradition, um, your will is still in your control. You can, you can desire or choose to do anything you want, but God is ultimately sovereign. So you may want to do something wrong, and God has the capacity to prevent you. That doesn't necessarily mean, it doesn't give you innocence then, necessarily, but the point is that God uh, is both sovereign and you have free will, kind of at the same time. It's kind of weird. But anyway, the point is, um, Abraham's, uh, Abimelech is blocked up here, that turns out to be helpful not only for Abimelech, but also for God. Because what does, one of my precept teachers I had pointed out this as well, what happens right after the story? Who's born? Isaac is born. Well, we got a real problem here because Sarah just ended up with Abimelech. Abraham and Sarah hadn't really been producing any children this whole time. And all of a sudden she's pregnant. If it had been anything else, like if God had given Navi Melik leprosy or, you know, whatever else, there would have been very good reason to doubt the progeny of Yitzhak. And ultimately then, doubt the veracity of God's promises. But Avi Melik is totally prevented from getting Sarah pregnant. To his own credit, he then says, I didn't. And, according to tradition, Yitzhak and Abraham were like the spitting image of each other, so they knew, definitely, this is his son. Yeah. But the point, just simply being, is that this, it's kind of cool, it's like if you ever read like a really good book and you got these little details that are really important, same thing here. God has set this up brilliantly to preserve his own promises and his own word. And now we're talking about Abimelech. We really need to kind of continue on past Abimelech into the next section, but I've got a couple comments because um, we're actually getting to the end here. Yes, sir. Just real quick, for those who didn't hear, um, as you know, in our country, uh, even though at least 35, if not 40 different states voted and their own state citizens determined that they did not want to allow 
homosexual marriage. Sodomites. Sodomites, that's exactly right. And uh, through our court process and judicial happenings, all of those laws in each state were stricken down by a higher court. We just had a superior court that actually supported <laughs> four different states the fact that, here's the quote, it's up to the states to determine if they want to allow homosexual marriage in their states. That will certainly go to the Supreme Court. So uh -huh. Not to decide is, after all. There is a very good chance that our country may actually make a little bit of a right turn. Yeah. Well, just to follow up on that, the judge actually said it's for the populace to determine, not for judges. Right. Yeah. That I agree. Yeah. Did you have another comment? I did. Having sons, I must say, I often pray that you'd be stopped from doing anything that you didn't right. want to do, yeah. and that you'd be caught if you did. Oh, there we go. That's a good prayer. Amen. That's a great prayer. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Judaism teaches that there is a benefit, there's a good thing to trying to find almost an excuse to have mercy. Right. There's an opportunity for it. God does that in his parasha a little bit further on. We've, we, we know the story, so we don't need to go through each piece of it. But um, Ishmael gets driven out. And it says when Hagar gets, Hagar gets depressed, she gives up. She says, you know what, he's going to die. I can't watch it. She puts him over there. The angel comes to Hagar and says, I have heard his cry, not yours. Which is, which is odd. You know, why are you talking to me if you've heard his cry? And he says, do not fear because God has seen him where he is or in his present state. Judaism, its commentary, teaches that, um, that God, in spite of the fact that Ishmael turns into a pretty bad dude, at least for a while there, um, Hashem treated him mercifully based on when he, where he was right then. The angels are looking at it going... Well, look at what he's going to do. He's going to end up becoming the rival to Israel. And, like, he's going to end up, his descendants will end up being, like, a real problem in the thorn of the side of God's people. Now's a really good time to whack him. And what happens here? God has mercy on Ishmael. Again, so has mercy on even the, the future wicked. That's pretty cool. I didn't even think of this, but the commentary pointed out that there's a juxtaposition between the story of Hagar and Ishmael in the desert and then the Shunammite woman with her son that actually dies. Huh, and okay. how the Shunammite woman actually stays with her son, cares for him right. until he actually passes, and then goes like right away to get help. And I thought that was so cool. They actually, because of that, they put her and her righteousness like almost at the level of the matriarchs because wow. of just how amazing of a mother she was for yeah. doing that. So that was pretty cool. Very cool. Very good point. Pete, did you have a comment? I see. I saw your hand oh, up earlier. Okay. Thank you. 
give up? Is this I, something I said? No, I, I, rose, I rose my hand, but then you said what I was going to say. Oh. I don't know what it was, but I thought to myself, oh. I'm scrupulous here. Hey, we're thinking the same <laughs> lines here. Great lines. We can talk about the student mic briefly, yeah. No, just, just tradition says, it's really, very cool. And actually, I thought, that, I thought the correlation, the second passage of the Apostolic Scriptures today was awesome. Because it's talking about the resurrection and tying it to this portion and the Shunammite woman. Because if, in fact, tradition is correct, and the, the child is Jonah, then the, then the sign of Jonah that Yeshua speaks of is not just three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and not just simply that Nineveh repents, the, the Gentile nation repents, but also that there's a resurrection, a physical resurrection in the, in the story of Jonah, that Jonah himself was resurrected. Pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. Got to look for those little details. Well, I really think we would be wrong of us to do our discussion and not cover the binding of Isaac. And that really needs to be the end because we're actually already past time. So we'll kind of get to that point. But I'll, Colby, do you have a question or comment real quick? Just a, a plug. Um, Rabbi Reb, Reb Mir and on SoundCloud, playlist called Breslau Therapy, goes about like a 50-minute class on the lives paralleling Isaac and Ishmael. Mm. relates Judaism to Islam. Interesting. And the whole class is it's incredible. I mean, it goes through the prayers, and it ends. It's it's essentially Islam is outwardly religious. Jews are outwardly religious and inwardly religious. Mm. Um, that's a really good. That's point. actually not the whole class, but there's a lot of stuff. He, at the end, he breaks down tefillin. It looks like a black box, and but inside is holiness, and in the midst of darkness, black mm. like Jews be Jews. So, but. Just relating to this portion, I would highly recommend people listen to it. Cool. And Very give cool. Red Mayor Sadaka afterwards. <laughs> there we go. Glennis. It's just a request to pray for your people in this country. And it's because of what I see in school every day. Hmm. And it's with this concept of freedom in schools, it's like I've been seeing a lot of homosexualism in schools. So I see boys. And I don't know if they're boys or girls. Hmm. And I have students like that. And it's like, okay, I'm free and I, I can do whatever I want. Hmm. Or I'm looking for myself. Hey, you're 14, you're 15, you're looking for yourself. You don't know <laughs> what you are or who you are. You don't know if you're a woman or a man. So hmm. uh, That's not freedom, that's depravity. Exactly. Yeah, so that's hard and it's sad. Yeah, that's why I support homeschooling. If you can do that, <laughs> 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 oh, man. I'm a teacher, and that's my job. I don't have students, I don't have a job. But uh, homeschooling is really good. And I see the difference with those kids and the ones who just go to school the entire life because it's really sad to see that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I pray for you. We should yeah, definitely yes. be a prayer for, for yes. this country. Um, yeah, thinking about Hagar being a really good mom. My mom is a really good mom. She homeschooled me. <laughs> Jonathan. And I'm still homeschooling. <laughs> That's true. One more thing. Uh, if you have a, a Kumash chapter 18, verse 9, it's related to the, the binding of Isaac, but there's Nikud over a particular word in the Hebrew. So Abraham is outside with, with the angels and they're eating under the tree. And then they say, Bayamru um, alav. They said to him, and under him they have like these four little dots on, uh, actually on, on the top of the word, uh, where is your wife Sarah? And he says, behold, she's in the tents. And then, then they like, okay, good. So then they actually like break the news to him that he's, he's going to have a son. 
Um, so they're outside, and they ask him, where's your wife? And they said, like, you know, and they said to him, kind of like quotation marks, because it's not really talking to him, because after they give the news, which Abraham already believed, then Sarah laughs. Um, and, and if you count the number of verses in the Sidra, it's 147, corresponding to the word Emunah. Abraham had faith throughout this entire thing. The angels were talking to him, not really talking to him, but kind of like, you know, um, really expressing the fact that Sarah, who's kind of eavesdropping on the other side, was really who the message was intended for. Right? And even when she laughs, God's, God speaks uh, up on, on that issue as well. Hmm. But uh, all I have to say that um, uh, Abraham's faith is, is accredited and established, and Sarah was still kind of, was, was still a little doubtful. And it's, and, but it's God can still speak through Abraham or through any, any uh, scenario to actually get to someone else to, mm-hmm. to, to give confirmation to that person. So when they said, uh, when, when, they, when, when they spoke to Yikud, parentheses, him, um, it's, it, it's just a kind of way to say that he's, he's just a conduit, really, of, 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 hmm. of a miracle. Yeah, and ultimately we see with chapter 22, um, Abraham has, again, that alacrity of getting up in the morning to go offer Isaac. And then he also has... Um, one of the commentaries uh, in the story of, of the, the Binding of Beitzach is they say that when he got to the third day, he could see the mountain from afar. And they said that he could see the smoke, you know, from the temple, like, prophetically in the <laughs> distance. And he turns to, like, the guys with them, and he's like, do you see that? And they go, what? He leaves them behind, because they obviously are not, you know, on a high enough plane to go with them. <laughs> um, but what's really cool is, is I think we, we don't, I think one of the things that we, we, we heroize Abraham here really should, because he's an amazing man, but I don't think we give quite enough credit to Isaac. Isaac does something that is truly astounding. They create tradition, Isaac is 37 years old, and Abraham is 137 years old. <laughs> In other words, there's no way yeah. Abraham is binding Isaac. Um, but Isaac lets the whole thing happen. Um, and that's in spite of the fact that Isaac's reputation according to Scripture is strength. The, the sages teach that like each guy has like his own, each patriarch has like his own like attribute, almost like a superhero kind of thing. And Isaac is most commonly associated with like strength, like power. Like that's one of the things that he's associated with. So he's, he's like probably a pretty impressive guy. Um, but he submits himself. And that's, I think, also really kind of cool is the idea that like he took his strength, which is strength, and he, it's like he flipped it. For Hashem, so he he becomes submissive when his strength is power. So that kind of flipping that around, and they teach also ultimately that Isaac was able to subdue his evil inclination and turn it over to the service of Hashem. So he could eat a meal, and it was a complete worship experience because he had used that power and put it into um, righteousness. Uh, that's a whole slew of hands, so let's start here. Well, I didn't know if you wanted to read the Midrash on that from Isaac. That was so cool. It's like basically as what Isaac would have said, that little story. So it said, I'll, I'll just read it real quick. It says, um, regarding the fact that he is really strong and his dad is not, and the, the, the passage that this is commenting on is he bound Isaac. And so the Midrash says, Isaac said, Father, I'm a vigorous young man. You are old. I fear that when I see the slaughtering knife in your hand, I will instinctively jerk and possibly injure you. I might also injure myself and thus become unfit for the sacrifice. Or an involuntary movement might, uh, by me might prevent you from 
performing the ritual slaughter properly. Therefore, bind me well so that at the final moment I will not be d- right. deficient in, in uh, honor and respect and thereby not fulfill the commandments <laughs> properly. Which is just like unbelievably cool. Find an illustration offering, of what right? you were saying. Yeah. To, to just dovetail onto that, if I can. Um, yeah, that that's in the uh, in the midrash Rabbah is what that's quoting from. But there's also uh, another midrash that kind of takes that and looks at it. Um, and, and if I remember correctly, they pick, they pick up on the Hebrew word for you know, to for bound or to bind, and um, they. Uh, relate it to the idea of um, mark of, of like markings, mm-hmm. right? So, in other words, the fact that he, the fact that Isaac requested to be bound tightly, right? And how would he have been bound? His hands and his feet. When hmm. bind the bindings of Isaac. That's why we call it the akeda, the binding, right? Because the bindings themselves. The, the idea is or he was bound so tight at his own request that when he finally is released and, and, and comes, steps off the altar on his hands and on his feet are the, 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 the markings of the bindings hmm. right obvious you know messianic connotations there but really really cool very cool and that's why the, 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 According to this one commentary, that's the reason why we refer to it to the, as the binding of Isaac, as opposed to the sacrifice of Isaac or the slaughter of Isaac. The fact that it focuses on the fact that he requested to be bound tightly by his hands and his feet, and that there was a visible sign afterwards that that was true. Wow, very cool. So. Very cool. I think I may have missed you earlier. Did you have a comment? It's okay. You Maybe it's okay. Just being Move on. I think um, there was uh, Gloria in the corner. Yes. Um, you were speaking earlier about Isaac's strength and his, you know, obedience to his father, submission to his father. Um, it was making me think of my own father, who is now 93. Obviously a very weak man. Mm-hmm. His stature tells you that. And yet his strength is in his wisdom and his mm-hmm. godliness toward the Lord. And that though Isaac was strong and able to overpower his father, I would have to say that Abraham's strength was in the fact that his son respected him mm-hmm. and was willing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that commands, there's more than just the strength of Mm -hmm. his knowing his father was such a God-fearing man and respectable man and just a desire it would just it's just you were talking about the 318 men that he had under him as well what would draw that kind of you know men to him and I've been asked that about this group you know, why is this group growing in men when so many congregations is all women? Mm-hmm. You know, and I have to get that. You know, people, men are are drawn to wisdom mm-hmm. and they want to be obedient, but they don't want to be blindly obedient. They True. want to see. And so that is the Zadik. You know, your doers and your you're acting out, you're doing. 
But anyway, going back to Abraham, that his righteousness, his obedience to God, and his being respectful and compassionate toward men would draw Isaac to willingly submit. It, mm. it shows a greater, mm-hmm. a greatness about Abraham, I think. Indeed, I think it's like, it's like Yeshua says, wisdom is justified by her children. Mm-hmm. It's a good point. It's a very good point. Pete, do you have a comment? Well, a small comment about you mentioned Isaac's strength and stuff, which was what Gloria was just talking about. And uh, he's associated with the trait Gibor, which is like restraint. And that's, I was thinking to myself, that that's really what strength is, is restraint. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's actually a proverb that says, who is a strong man? Man who's been uh, restrained himself or uh, has self-control. Right. And so then, what what Gloria was saying about Abraham is that Abraham, who embodies Chesed, because Chesed is always like like water, like flowing out, mm-hmm. and Gaborah is restraint. So Abraham had to do the opposite of Chesed because he had to restrain his love for his son in order to sacrifice him, mm-hmm. um, which is what we pray every morning. That because Abraham was straightened, he had to go like the opposite of what he was going to do. We ask Hashem to do the same. Like if Hashem's going to judge us, to go to the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Very good points. Very cool. Mom, do you have your hand up? Or Dad? Dad is there. Well, I mean, uh, the, the apostolic writers uh, draw the correlation between Isaac and Yeshua uh, for obvious reasons. But in that same regard, uh, the, the might that Isaac was able to wield. Uh, if he wasn't, if he had not trusted his father, God, and yet we see him, we see him surrender, and the blessing that we have because of that surrender in Isaac, we see that that repeated and then manifold in 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 Yeshua's uh, surrender. Uh, you know, and I remember, I remember as a little kid, song that we used to always, I always heard was he could have called ten thousand angels. But he, and, and, the, and the notion that, that the, the creator, uh, the, the, uh, the means by which we all exist, surrendered himself and placed himself in a, in a position not only of weakness, but of, uh, of mockery and, and, and uh, to be murdered, as it were, and to do it willingly um, is evidenced in this week's portion as a prototype. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I agree. Yes, sir. Well, I was just, uh, you were mentioning his alacrity. And um, I was just curious if you look at it, and it's actually the word, the rise up early, it's, it's actually the word shikam. And it means to rise up early. Or to repeat one's actions. Hmm. So it's not that you get up early one morning. Hmm. It's that, you know, you do it on a regular basis. It's interesting that Lot invites these angels in it says turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night wash your feet then you can rise up early and be on your way <laughs> so it's interesting that he didn't uh, practice that necessarily but he knew that they would Abraham of course rises early uh, we see that twice but so did Abimelech and this is a guy who just claimed to be righteous and says oh God you, I mean come on you and you wouldn't take out a righteous guy for this, would you? Come on. I mean, we're... And he rises early in the morning. 
and calls his servants to explain the whole situation. Although the whole Abimelech rising early kind of reminds me of the, the scene in The Godfather rising early. <laughs> you know, it's like a God gives that, him like... That wasn't The Godfather, that was the bad guy who made fun of Italians. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just another interesting parallel between this story and Yeshua that really struck out to me, stuck out to me was... The, uh, the Midrash, which always adds just such like a beautiful element to some of the things that are just sort of factual as they throw them out, and it it really played up like the intensity of the emotion that was taking place as like Abraham was interacting with Isaac at this point, and it talks about how like you know as he reached for the knife like as he reached for the knife that tears were streaming into from Abraham into like Isaac's eyes, but then it, it also talks about how. Abraham was looking at Isaac, and then Isaac looked up at the angels on high, and um, Abraham didn't see them, but Isaac did, and it talks about how, like, the angels were literally weeping, too, and begging that God would save wow. Isaac at that point, because of, uh, the, they, they were mentioning, like, how Abraham was hospitable to strangers, and, and they were just throwing out all this stuff, like, look, the knife is, like, literally right there, please save him, like, the angels were saying this, and it just reminded me of the all of the events that take place right around Yeshua's crucifixion as well because like there's darkness over all the earth and like we don't have the other side of it like what was taking place with the angels you know like and just hearing this taking place around Isaac's time like it really starts to make you wonder like so after Yeshua dies like you know the veil is torn in two the earth is quaking like thunder everywhere and all this stuff happens and it's like that was that was most likely a manifestation of the what was taking place in the heavens at that time when when that happened and so it just really came alive for me this year to parallel the two I agree I think the I think angels the, are rioting in Jerusalem again <laughs> I was thinking of the tearing of the veil really to me we talked about this before I think in Saudi class is the idea of like rending the garments yeah. uh, in mourning and it's really powerful reading in Luke this year it says that after they had seen all of this the mob leaves beating their breasts which we know from from our prayers that that is a sign of of repentance so we see that like that that seeing that sadness that overwhelming powerful but sadness from god um had an impact the centurion and others were impacted by it i think well you had a comment and i think we probably need to wrap up but okay i think it's a pretty good place to stop Thank you all for uh, this somewhat marathon session. We have an enormous amount of stuff to cover in the book of Genesis, but um, a lot of good stuff there. If you would close us out in prayer. Avina Malkano, our Father and our King, we thank you once again for a wonderful day of rest that you provided. We thank you for the binding of Isaac, for the example of our father Abraham, and the example of the righteous son, the one with strength to overcome his foes and yet restrains himself on behalf of others. Father, we see the, the marvelous parallel and picture. I pray that it would give us an opportunity to speak to our friends and neighbors, the poor, the downtrodden, and those about us. Father, I pray that our actions would be righteous, that our souls would be godly, and that you would find us faithful in obedience to you. Bless the remainder of this day, Father. Help us to truly rest as we give thanks to you. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach Arani. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah and our Lord and all God's people say. Amen. Amen.